0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, and my name is Sharonik Bosu. I am a doctoral candidate in the English department at New York University, and I co-host another podcast called High Theory, which is available at hightheory.net, where we take apart difficult ideas from the academy in very, very short episodes. Today we are talking about a brilliant new book titled Outcast Bombay City City Making and the Politics of the Poor by Junaid Sheikh that is coming out next month published by University of Washington Press. Junaid Sheikh is Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Santa Cruz. His research interests include modern South Asia, urban studies, labor studies, Dalit studies, and global Marxism. His second book project will be on the life and times of Gangadhar Adhikari, a scientist who embraced communism and became a prominent leader of the Communist Party of India. Welcome, Janet, to the show and thank you so much for talking to us about your book.
0: Thank you, sharunik uh, for having me. I'm really excited to talk about uh, and uh, the book and have a conversation with you.
1: Thank you. I will begin the conversation by asking you about your intellectual journey, especially the trajectories which have led you to this project.
0: Sure. Uh, See, there are two important strands to the book. One uh, is uh, industrial capitalism and uh, the other is caste, right? Uh, the thesis, the main argument of the book is that capitalism attached itself to caste and leached on it, right? So it drew sustenance from caste, right? Now, first of all, uh, to identify something as industrial capitalism, and to get some understanding of caste itself was a journey for me, right? I grew up in an insular middle-class Muslim family where people rarely spoke of caste and they most certainly did not speak of capitalism. So uh, this, uh, of course, uh, if you have grown up in the 80s and the 90s like I have, uh, I came to, I, I was a teenager and, a, uh, and an early adult in the 1990s. So I came to political consciousness in the 1990s. If you've grown up at that time, caste and capitalism were all around. Right, These were the days of the Mandal movement, the anti-Mandal agitation. Right, C- Caste-based political parties were rising. The so-called silent revolution where the US... Uh, Christoph Jaffelo calls it, which actually was a very loud revolution, was going on in the 1990s. Economic liberalisation was being celebrated vociferously uh, in the 1990s. So capitalism cast was all around, and yet somehow that was not percolating into my world, right? My my family, my friends, my uh, the people I grew up with, uh, my education. Nothing was, uh, I was not getting a sense of what was, uh, I was not getting a sense of what was happening. I was not understanding. it. So the question, what is capitalism and uh, what is caste was not getting addressed. Right? I eventually, after my graduation, I, in the late 1990s, actually in 1999 and um, then early 2000s, I got a job as a journalist in Bombay City and I shifted to Bombay City. I grew up in a city called Pune, which is not too far from Bombay, but I came to Bombay City. And that was uh, uh, an eye-opening moment for me. I got a job as a reporter and I had to report on certain stories. One of the stories that I was asked to do was to write on workers' protest uh, in the 1990s who were demanding uh, compensation for their unpaid wages, and were also protesting the conversion of textile mill lands into malls and apartment complexes. Right. So I had to report on this, and I had no understanding of this. Right. So the question for me was, what is if I'm reporting on this, this must have a history. What is this history that I need to know? Right, The history of workers' politics in Bombay City. I had no idea about it. And then that sort of initiated this uh, uh, curiosity about what workers' politics was, what the textile mill industry in Bombay was, which eventually led to an understanding of industrial capitalism. That took me to the libraries in Bombay and I started reading some books uh, on uh, the cotton textile industry. Uh, Raj Narayan workers' book on... Uh, bombay and he had a, two fascinating books on bombay city i would I, I got my hands on those and i started re- reading that uh, and then i realized that i needed to understand these books right uh, i needed to um, in a way hear what the book was saying and i felt that i wasn't hearing what the book was saying so then in order to uh train myself and read more i thought you know I'll really need to study further And so in this uh, in this way through uh, m- my stint as a journalist, I realized that I was not uh, not read enough, not well read and I then started uh, this career on um, my graduate school in the. US etc and I came to the US just to read nothing else just to read and to understand uh, uh, understand my world right. One of the other things that happened, and that's where the caste question uh, uh, comes in, is that w- one of the other stories I had to report was um, on uh, the Ambedkar's death anniversary on the sixth of December. Every year in Bombay, uh, thousands and thousands of people from all over Maharashtra come to Bombay, or as it or Mumbai as it was then, uh, to pay uh, uh, to pay respects to Ambedkar's. Uh, Samadhi at Chaiti Bhumi, and opposite that is a place called Shivaji Park, and Shivaji Park is famous for producing Mumbai cricketers. Now all the Mumbai cricketers have uh, played there, from Tendulkar etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. There, the whole, it's almost like a huge cultural event there, where there are book stalls, uh, other cultural performances, and I had to report on that in '99 and 2000, so I went there. It was, you know, fascinating insight for me. Uh, It's the first time that I collected and I read books by Ambedkar, written by Ambedkar. I had not read Ambedkar. And that gave me an insight into what caste caste is. So uh, some understanding of caste, which I then had to explore further. So just because of these initial uh, uh, questions, then I started uh, reading. I uh, came to the U.S. to do uh, for graduate studies. And that's how I then started thinking of this question as a question of, of industrial capitalism and caste. And then the relationship of industrial capitalism to caste, which brings me to the thesis, which is that industrial capitalism and caste get entangled, uh, capitalism leeches on caste.
1: Thank, thank you, Junaid. Um, so from the prehistory of your book, Right to the very, very striking opening sentence of your book. Uh And uh, the opening sentence uh, goes like this, I quote, the Indian nose may be an unusual starting point for a history of Bombay city. The nose along with the head marked social hierarchy in colonial India, end of quotation. You know, this is unexpected to say the least. So what made you choose physiognomy to be your entry into the city as it were?
0: No, that's a yeah that's a great question actually. And this is a reference to the British civil servant and anthropologist uh, Herbert Hope Risley, right? uh, very, very influential in South Asia. Uh, in, uh, he had a mo- uh, he had a role in many defining moments of 20th century, South Asia, because he proposed the divisions of provinces along linguistic lines, right which uh, comes in the 1890s, which is what he's proposing, which in India happens uh, later on in the 20th century. He played a role in the partition of Bengal along religious religious lines in 1905. And what the sentence uh, that you're quoting, the first sentence, is referring to his role as the architect of the 1901 census in India. He was the commissioner of the 1901 census. Uh, For Risley, caste was the most important feature of social hierarchy. And he believed that if you conducted anthropometric measurements of the noses and heads of people, you will be able to understand their position in the caste hierarchy. In this way, understanding of caste would become more scientific and more meaningful. So in a way, what he was saying was that the body was an important material referent for caste. Caste was not just something in the head. The body was a material referent, according to him. So as you can imagine, once you start measuring the heads of people and the noses of people, right? you'll see that in a place like Bombay Presidency, and Bombay City was the premier city of Bombay Presidency, Bombay presidency you'll find that the nasal and the cephalic indices of most people including the upper caste brahmins the middle class kunbi peasants or lower caste uh, fishing groups like kolis they are all pretty similar once you start measuring people they all look pretty similar right there has been intermingling etc over the uh, centuries right so risley's theory particularly in a place like uh, uh, bombay presidency he may have gotten more traction in north india but particularly in a place like uh, bombay presidency you know, it's uh, it created chaos, right? And it was bound to fall flat. It does just didn't make any sense, right? So this 1901 census was this. Uh, 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 the first sentence of the book is uh, a reference to Risley and his theory of caste and nose um, uh, of and caste based on the measurement of the nose and the head what happens uh, in 1901 is that in a parallel move the bombay city census now not the all india census but the bombay city census was uh, tasked with the job of classifying the built environment and housing in the city yeah they were asked to do this job because they uh, the government uh, wanted to restructure the city and they wanted to restructure the city because uh, of the plague epidemics that uh, happened and were going on actually uh, at that time. There was a major plague epidemic in Bombay City in 1896 and 98. And plague was blamed on the contagion uh, spread by the localities of the poor, of the urban poor, Uh, People like Prashant Kidambi have spoken about it. Uh, Nikhil Rao has spoken about it. Sheetal Chabriya has also talked about it. So one of the arguments that a book is making is that the built environment and not the body became the material referent for caste. And for caste in the city. Uh, So built environment and housing, as you know, I mean, you look at a a built environment, you look at a house, we can easily, easily deduce the class status of the person or of the locality, right? but i argue that in bombay city it also becomes the material uh, referent for caste so in then in chapter 1 i provide evidence for this
1: right so you know you have already started talking about i think what you explored in chapter 1 which is you know the an inen- inevitable question in any urban history which is the question of space or lack thereof um could you give us a brief idea of space Conditioned by caste and religion over the time absolutely. that this chapter covers, which is eighteen ninety six and to nineteen fifty, absolutely.
0: I mean, it's not just caste and religion, of course. It's also capital, right? right? Uh, so, if I mean, let me. I'll answer this question in uh, in a. Um, I'll give you a just a little back history. Uh, uh, if you want to start a tech industry, particularly a cotton textile industry in the nineteenth century, in a place like Bombay. And I would say in other parts of the world even, but in a place like Bombay, if you want to start a cotton textile industry, what do you need? Right. One of the most important thing you need, of course, is capital. Right. Now in colonial times, nationalized banks are not offering you credit to start an industry. Right. So the Bombay mill owners who actually are merchants, and many of these merchants have made their money in the opium trade in the 19th century opium trade with china right they are what is called diversifying the portfolio and they are saying let's now start this uh, cotton textile industry right because the returns from the opium trade are falling down right for that now you need various things but an important thing is also capital and for that they tap they are caste and kinship networks to raise money. Right. So now, to start an industry, you uh, tapped your caste network. Caste was instrumental in starting that industry. You now imported uh, machines from Europe, particularly England. You had you got s- some skilled laborers, managers from Europe who could operate some of those machines. But now, what you need is workers. Right. So where do you get the workers? Right. Once again, uh, you tapped the caste and kinship networks of jobbers to get workers from the hinterland to Bombay City. Right, And if you want to start an industry, and let's say in one cotton text- textile industry, you need 50 workers, let's say. Uh, but if you have a demand for 50 workers, and 50 workers land up on the mill gates, you'll have to pay them a high wage right so you have to make sure that instead of 50 500 workers land up so that you pay them less and to get those 500 workers to land up you need jobbers and the jobbers are recruiting people from their own caste so that you know they are relying on their caste they are relying on their patronage uh, you can discipline those workers through the jobbers so the jobbers would help you find employment and housing in the city so as if you see the caste has already played a, uh, uh, an important yeah. role yeah. in starting the industry and in recruiting workers uh, to the textile industry and not just the textile industry but also to the docks not just to the docks but also to uh, to uh, for sanitation workers in the city right and now The question is now if you're getting these people from the city and you're getting excess workers because you want to pay them less, that's the feature of uh, uh, industrial capitalism in Bombay, that you want to pay them less, right, as less as possible. So if you want to pay them as less as possible, where do you house them? Right? You want to, you will, they will definitely, they will find housing that is cheap. The housing that are that is cheap in this time are gerbil chawls or tenements and slums. Right. So for industrial capitalism, you need tenements and you need slums to house the workers. Okay. So uh, it's in that so uh, class so caste and class are entangled. Right. You um, we'll find housing in slums. By by the last quarter of the 19th century, then you see that in Bombay, there are localities which are based on some of the dominant caste in that localities. Just for example, a place called Agri Pada, where people from the Agri community or the Agri caste live, a place like Kumharwada or the potter's colony, where the potters live, Kolivada, where the kolis or uh, the fisher folks live, right? Even upper caste people or Muslim communities, uh, uh, business communities uh, like uh, the Memons, for instance, uh, or uh, the Bhoris, for instance, they concentrated in particular localities. So this is how migration to the city happened. This is how people were housed in the city from the 19th century onwards, from the second half, late 19th century onwards. Now in the... uh, last decade of the 19th century, there is a plague epidemic. And because of the plague epidemic, now you're restructuring the built environment of the city, which is you're uh, clearing the congested localities of the city. It's at this time in in 1998, sorry, not 1988. In 1998, there is the uh, institution of the Bombay Improvement Trust. And what it says that it uh, is mandated with the job to clear overcrowded localities, and to build housing, right? So now to build that housing, uh, you know, you have to acquire land, etc. Acquisition of land in that housing, you, uh, the colonial government, that is, who is building that, they considered had a questionnaire for caste. Right? They allotted tenements based on caste. Right? So you find particular caste groups concentrating in particular tenements of the Bombay Improvement Trust. Right. The other thing that happens now, and this is at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, the other thing that happens is the cooperative housing societies. And in cooperative housing societies, again, caste because, becomes an important principle uh, that the colonial government considers. So you have cooperative housing societies based on caste one of the things that the Bombay Improvement Trust does is it says that it'll suburbanize. And for suburbanization, then they make land available for suburbanization. And that buying of land also happens along some of the, uh, some of it happens along the lines of caste. For instance, uh, Nikhil Rav has spoken about this, that uh, in a place uh, like uh, Dadar and that area there, in the early uh, 20th century, the Bhatia community, which is a business community, they bought land, right? And then they make sure that there is no meat market close to that. So because they said we are vegetarians, uh, there is no meat market close to uh, close to that area where they have formed a community, they've bought land and made their houses. So the meat market is uh, shifted further away. So what I'm trying to say is... Uh, that even urban planning had to consider this question of caste, then. right? Yeah. So, yeah. I, d- did you have a question?
1: Yeah. Oh no! Please go ahead.
0: Yeah. No. Uh, so over the, uh, the the period of time then uh, then um, uh, now now this is the 1920s. Now uh, in the 1920s, uh, the the Dalit movement ar- uh, uh, now takes force in a place like Bombay. Ambedkar comes on the political scene. Uh, uh, Then there is a leader called S.K. Bole who who always raised questions uh, of caste and of Dalits. And S.K. Bole in uh, the Maharashtra Legislative Council raises the question of caste in allotting houses to Bombay's poor. Right. Ambedkar also then says that um, uh, when it comes to forming cooperative housing societies, that Dalits should also form cooperative housing societies. And then by the end of the 1930s, you had uh, uh, Dalit cooperative societies, or emergence of a few, at least one in Khar, uh, that uh, comes into being. So caste was always considered, and of course, it's not just caste, of course, and caste and class are intersecting, right? If you're a poor Dalit, you'll stay in in some of the poorer tenements, both uh, tenements built by the Bombay Improvement Trust, later built by the Bombay Development Department, or also by private builders. Right? If you are slightly well off, you'll stay in some other tenements. Right? So the question of caste was important to the question of housing. The government was paying attention to it. The market was paying attention to it right and uh, uh, so that's how uh, in bombay you see th- there are these localities that are uh, dominated uh, by particular caste groups uh, and you had particularly within localities uh, or you had uh, you had chawls or tenements don- dominated by particular caste groups right so this chapter the first chapter is uh, is tracing this part trajectory of how uh, this uh, the Cast played an important role in housing, uh, in urban planning, as I was uh, saying with that example, Uh, right? And uh, then, uh, of course, uh, housing was always uh, tied to the question of slums, because whenever you spoke about housing, you were also talking about the proliferation of slums and what to do with the slums. Yeah,
1: Yeah. you, of course, you know, talk about the slum in your last chapter, and we will come to that. But for now. Mm Your next chapter kind of makes a pivot. It it, it moves, you know, towards right. a study of discourse as you talk yeah. about the adaptation and domestication of different right. strands of Marxist thought right. into the different spaces and institutions of Bombay. So, could you give us, you know, a sense of your method, uh, how you're doing this?
0: No, absolutely. And I'll describe the chapter too. And one of the reasons I have uh, I was uh, uh, this chapter came about. Was of course when you read Dalit literature, you see that uh, you know there was uh, Dalit literature had a deep link and affinity with the, the Marxist movements, which means that they had a, a great affinity uh, with um, uh, uh, with um, with Marxists in Bombay City, or and not just affinity. Of course, there is cr- critiques and debate. Yeah, yeah. So I had to do something about. Uh, so I had to address this question of what is this Marathi Marxism, right? Uh, so uh, it, I mean. Yeah, pivot, of course. But of course, my first chapter also was discussing, you know, discourse of housing and planning and suburbanization. So discourse was is important to chapter one too. But this is one of the reasons why Marxism is important to, uh, uh, to the book too, uh, which is uh, uh, that the literature was considering, uh, was always talking about Marxism and socialism. And in order to understand them, then I had to develop an understanding of what sort of Marxism and socialism were they familiar with. Right? They had heard and read about Marxism in Marathi. Now, this Marxism and socialism, of course, was a significant force in workers' politics right in the 1920s. Now, uh, th- that was the other reason to uh, have an understanding of this, uh, of Marxism, because it was a significant significant force in workers' politics. So then the question for me was, what was the Marxism that trickled into Bombay City and how did it get there? Right. Remember these are colonial times there are laws and there are censorship and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So Marxism is not trickling into Bombay very easily right uh, or rather it's not coming to Bombay very easily, it's only trickling in and you know spurts. So Marxist, uh, uh so the marxism that's trickling into bombay city is really initially uh really social democracy right social de- german social democracy uh, american social uh, democracy and that's what's making its way into uh, bombay and that's what bombay people are reading right the 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 bombay marxists are, re- are reading right now what's happening with the uh uh, uh This uh, with Marxism, of course, is that now people are reading whatever is coming to them, which is not much. Some of them, uh, you know, Communist Manifesto comes in and somebody like uh, S. A. Dange reads the Communist Manifesto, who is the foremost Marxist, reads the Communist Manifesto in the house of a Bombay merchant who has picked up the Communist Manifesto in London when he was visiting London. Right. And uh, because Dange had published a pamphlet uh, in the early 1920s, he's taken in by Dange and he makes contact with Dange and he you know becomes a patron, so to speak. And he finances uh, uh, this merchant, finances uh, uh, the propagation of socialism in, in, in Bombay, uh, gets a printing press, etc., funds a printing press. Uh, and this, this is where Dange is reading some of his uh, f- first uh, books uh, on Marxism. Right, which is which is in his house, in his library. So uh, uh, the chapter is also discussing some of this. Now, Bombay's Marxists are wanting a political revolution, of course, but they are also wanting a social revolution. Right. So if they are wanting a social revolution, they have to address the question of caste. Right, because caste is an important feature of Indian society. So, how, what do they say about caste? So that's how I started tracking what they are saying about caste, right? Because now they are, uh, you know, because it's a social rev- revolution, so they uh, say. I'm uh, seeing what they are saying about caste, and what they are saying about caste to say what they are saying about caste, which is, you know, they're saying things about caste, of course, but not as much. So what I'm doing is, I'm uh, I, what I did uh, as a method, and because your question was about method, was I was reading their footnotes uh, carefully right? uh, and reading their writings and doing a close reading of their writings. And I was, then it's when I realized that the world of Marathi Marxism, because now remember they are, have to translate this in uh, Marxism in Marathi, was not in sync with the working of caste in Bombay City. Which is, if you uh, if you uh, saw what, what chapter one was uh, talking, was that industrial capitalism is leeching on caste, is using caste to get nourishment. Uh, what Marxists are saying is caste is out of sync with modern times. Right, that uh, first capitalism, and then. Socialism will make caste redundant. Right. If you see the disjuncture that it's industrial capitalism is using caste and they are saying that capitalism is going to weaken caste and make it redundant. right? So there was that, that is where that's when I realized that they are uh, well, there's a sink that is missing there. They were out of sync, right. And what they are saying is that caste of course is used by uh, Bombay industrialists. Uh, uh, to break strikes, which of course they are doing, right? They're using it to break strikes. So so then uh, I tried to explore this being out of sync with capitalism, uh, how capitalism is working in the city a little bit further in the second chapter uh, uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. And that you saw throughout the 1920s and in the 1930s that castes continues to be a very to be an irritant for them so for instance sripad dange uh, who's one of the most influential Marxists in Bobby city as a, a very important marxist leader a communist leader in india from the 20s onwards he is irritated with the anti-brahmin movement and is always he's equating the anti-brahmin movement to uh, to fascism right then you have non brahmin communist leaders who are critiquing the brahmin communist leaders for their Brahminism. they are calling them brahmin communists and then you had uh, communists who are calling the dalit movement artificial and ultimately reactionary so if you look at some of their uh, uh, the, some of their you know it, it's in passing so you do a symptomatic reading of this or you read footnotes and you see that this is going on, right? There is an irritation with caste. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there is a critique of caste uh, uh, by communist parties. The non-Brahmin uh, leaders are critiquing the Brahmin communists, etc. And so then we see that caste has become a, an Achilles heels of the Marxist leaders of this time. Right? So then what evidence, more evidence should I provide for this? That was the question that I posed myself right uh, uh, I mean you are getting this in footnotes, etc. but I thought you know uh, maybe there should be if caste is important uh, in this world, uh, even though people are you know uh, uh, dismissing caste, etc, uh, if caste is important to this world, what more evidence should I provide? And then that's when I I read the Marxist or the translation of Marxist pamphlets that happened in uh, uh, Bombay in the late 1920s and the 1930s, and they're published in Bombay at around this time. So, for instance, the Communist Manifesto, for instance, or wage labor and capital. And these are some of the texts that are circulating in Bombay, have come to Bombay, right? By, by this time, by the 20s and 30s, there is not much textual production of Marxist pamphlets uh, that is coming from the Soviet Union, right? It's very limited, hardly anything. Uh, this is. These are some of the texts that are coming in from England and you know some Germany, etc. So what I realized that in this translation of categories itself, you see a hierarchy of language. Right? So for instance, the abstract categories, uh, like for instance, use value, are translated as upyuktavastu, right, right, which is and this exchange value would be vikrad Mol. These categories, I mean, if you, these terms, if you see, are very Sanskritized terms. It's Sanskritized Marathi, right? But if you see embodied categories, right? For instance, lumpen proletariat, which the Marathi translation of the Communist Manifesto also refers to as the slum proletariat, right? That is called, uh, uh, that is uh, called, they are called Mavalis, right? which is urban slang so you notice a hierarchy in translation here of language right, right? abstract uh, terms in sanskritized marathi embodied terms in uh, in slang right so this hierarchy in terms is also uh, mimicking the mind and body dyad that you see right which is becomes a is seen as another feature of caste of course so so then uh, I, then i also then started noticing and reading the pamphlets uh, carefully in one of the uh, in one of the ads that is printed in this translated pamphlet i see an advertisement for a i saw an advertisement for a brahmin mess or a boarding house for brahmins just for brahmins in a translated pamphlet of the uh, of, uh, of the communist party of the or, of the marxist movement Right. so there are these things that I pull out and provide more evidence of uh, that right? so the point then is that the world of Bombay Marxism, Marathi Marxism is embroiled in the world of caste there are debates that happen and by the 1930s of course uh, uh, Ambedkar is also uh, debating He's, at one moment in the 1930s Ambedkar is, in, uh, is saying that capitalism of course is a big problem but along with capitalism, you have to fight Brahminism too. So both, right? But he's acknowledging that capitalism is a big problem, right? So it's this world and the uh, some of the tensions and the paradoxes of this world uh, that I uh, uh, try to trace in my second chapter, uh, and I, I provide a social historical reconstruction of Marathi Marxism. So some of the methods that I use are methods of social history, which is you find. Uh, the networks of people, you know, pay attention to, you know, who they are meeting, who they are talking to, what are they are reading, uh, you know, etc. Well, I'm doing that. I, and then I'm doing a close uh, and symptomatic reading of texts in see. this chapter. Yeah.
1: Um, and then you modify, I think you modify these methods a little bit. And in chapter three, which is titled, Urban Planning and Cultural Politics, and you know, that chapter continues this discussion of space being integral to discursive and textual production. So Absolutely. I'm wondering, you know, what, what is the scope in this chapter? What spaces, texts and genres are you looking at?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so my, the I begin this chapter with a discussion of uh, a very important uh, writer who is part of the Marxist movement and who comes from a Dalit caste. Uh, his name was Anabhav uh, anubhav sate uh, is a prolific uh, is a, was a prolific writer uh, as you see with many dalit uh, uh, writers uh, uh, and anubhav Sathe becomes an icon of dalit literature too many uh, many important writers of dalit literature uh, consider him as an icon of dalit literature right if you see with many dalit writers they are not uh, educated very much i mean it's not that they have you know gotten many gotten many degrees right but they are, reading and, uh, they are reading important texts of that time with uh, friends, etc. Uh, so I begin this chapter with Annabhai Sathe, uh, who had little formal education, but was a prolific, prolific writer. And these are some of the plays, or as he called, Lok Natyas, or folk theatre that he performs in front of uh, the urban poor, mostly workers, when they are being addressed by their leaders. Before that, they are performing these plays and these are plays that he has written between 1945 and 1955 right sathe was the founder of the red flag cultural troupe an important arm uh, of the uh, communist uh, party in uh, in bombay uh, and what these plays discuss is the mobilization and the politicization of the workers over the question of urban ha- space and housing right so the the spaces that these plays are talking about are of course the tenements and the slums that's where the play, the plays are situated located right uh, and the urban poor mobilize in public space and confront the police and the government on the question of housing and urban space right so then uh, I begin this chapter with this, but then I, after that, I juxtapose the mobilization of workers uh, uh, with the polit- politics and the vision of urban planners, right? If you uh, 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 if you look at the history of urban planning, urban planning emerges in the 19th century in Europe, uh, you know, but to discipline the rest of European workers, right? I think... Uh, uh, that was also the reason why urban planning becomes important in twentieth century Bombay, right? Which is a way of disciplining uh, workers too, and the workers' movement, uh, uh, which is becoming radical. Right? So many plans for Bombay city emerged from the in from the nineteen forties and nineteen uh, fifties, right? This is the period in which, of course, Bombay city itself is uh, changing from the island of Bombay to Greater Bombay, which is they are inculcating areas that are outside bombay into uh, bombay uh, into greater bombay which is the modern day suburbs of bandra and kar and all that becomes part of bombay in the 1950s right uh, that that itself was contested because if you want to create suburbs you will have to build facilities in the suburbs because you want to move people there right and you can't move the poor people there because then they'll have to commute to the city and for that they'll need money to commute to the city uh, uh you know, they need to buy a train fare so you generally people who land up in the suburbs were really middle-class people and then of course some poor right so uh that's why uh, uh this is the time that when all this is happening when urban planners are laying out their vision including bombay industrialists uh, they come up with what is called the bombay plan right uh, and they have these visions of uh, uh, what a house, perfect house should be, and the perf- perfect house should be uh, at least 500 square feet, et cetera. And, uh, you know, so all these visions are in abstract, uh, right? Uh, uh, all these visions are in abstract because if to make it a reality, you'll have to do things. And most important thing you'll have to do is you'll have to back it with money. Nobody wants to back it with money. Nobody wants to spend money on the housing for urban poor, or uh, not too much, Right. So the plans that the, uh, that uh, I looked at, then, the urban plans, they were recommend, uh, recommending suburbanization. And importantly, which is what a theme actually throughout the 20th century, which is in order to decongest Bombay, the island of Bombay, you have to uh, de-industrialize Bombay. Stop the building of big industries, and then eventually try and shift the big industries out of the city. Right? this de-industrialization, as you can imagine, will affect workers. Right? So all the plans were talking about this. And they, of course, because they have to address the question of housing in the city, which means they have to address the question of slums in the city. Right? What do you do with the slums? When the slums what do you do with the slums is uh, its slums are important to you, so you can't do much with it. If you remove the slums, industrial capitalism collapses. But if you Keep the I mean, and if you keep the slum, it's an eyesore for you know the powers that be and you know the elite in the city, etc. Right? So what they do then is a legal infrastructure is created for land acquisition because now they are suburbanizing, etc. And then also slum demolition. Laws are passed which will enable slum demolition, etc. So over a period of time, by the 1960s and the 1970s, what happens? Is that because of various pressures, political pressures, slums? Some slums remain, right? Some slums remain, and they become what, uh, in Lisa Weinstein's word, would be durable slums. While some other slums are demolished and they are shifted out of the cities, right, uh, to the suburbs, etc., which created slums in the suburbs, right? So. Uh, Then the point, then, uh, which is a linking, uh, circling back to the point that I was making with restive workers talking about uh, demanding uh, uh, urban housing, housing in cities, etc., is that uh, planning was done by technocrats and bureaucrats, and that's a way of shielding it as much as possible in these times from the politics of the urban poor, right? The poor mobilized in the streets for they also fought court cases actually, and you see some of the uh, referred to just a couple of court cases saying you know they're claiming certain areas, uh, uh, and they also forced political parties to address these issues. Right. So you see that over a period of time, some 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 slums are d- demolished, moved away from the city. They had the provisions to demolish more slums, so there is always uh, uh, the uh, the Fear the threat of demolition of slum is always hanging, uh, dangling on some dwellers, uh, slum dwellers. But you can't demolish all the slums because you know your uh, industrial capitalism is depending on it. So slum slums uh, are becoming durable uh, by political pressure, and uh, somebody like Partha Chatterjee is also talking about this, right? In the politics of the govern, that the pressure from below is also making uh, the government stop political parties patronize some slum uh, uh, dwellers. So you know. So you have this picture in which some slums are durable, some slums are demolished, and they're being moved out of the city center and then some of them are into, um, uh, into the suburbs. And it's at this time that uh, uh, you see that uh, many suburbs of, of Bombay are getting inculcated into greater Bombay also. But it's at this time uh, that you see the emergence of new Bombay which is in the 1960s. One of the things that I trace in the chapter is the tension between, or not tension, but the different fates of the plans initiated by the city municipal corporation and then eventually the Maharashtra government. So the plans of the Maharashtra government or backed by the Maharashtra government carried more weight. So it's in 1966 that the Gardagil plan, as it was known, is recommending the making of uh, the city of New Bombay. And which would then ease the congestion of Bombay city. The plan is that it'll they'll have some industries in New Bombay. Some offices will be shunted there. Government offices would be shunting there. Uh, some of this happens. Some of this doesn't happen. Right. So, uh, so the, and then you see with uh, the making of uh, New Bombay, is that uh, from. City planning, then you find regional planning become the becomes the mode of urban planning. It's not just focused on Greater Greater Bombay, but the region of Bombay. Yeah. So regional planning becomes important. So these are some of the things that I uh, track in uh, this particular chapter, in chapter three. Right? So the visions of the planners, of course, but also the politics of the workers.
1: This is, um. so I actually just finished a chapter on planning and I was, you know, working mainly on Godgill's writing.
0: You so did? This oh, wow! Is, yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, so this is, this is amazing. I'm gonna, you know, I, um I'm gonna go back and, you know, read up all on it again. Um. So, you know, next, in your next chapter, you take up the larger lineages of Dalit literature. And mm-hmm. uh, could you give us a sense of how you are Uh, A, you know, building on earlier literary historiographies of Dalit literature, how it's been read, and also, you know, a sense of the intervention that you're making.
0: Right. Right. So as I was saying, uh, I mean, you know, uh, like Marxism, uh, which is, of course, also coming from Europe and Soviet Union, etc., right? Like urban planners who are also coming from various parts of the world, the influence of Dalit literature is also transnational. Right. Uh, what was fascinating for me is that a, a group of Dalit writers are uh, and intellectuals are coming together, and are talking about creating a field of Dalit literature. Right. They're saying, okay, no, let's let's create something like Dalit literature, which will express some of the opinions uh, of Dalits, will which will air some of the experiences of Dalits, the experience of being a Dalit. Right, and these some of these discussions are happening in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, uh, and then the nineteen sixties too. Right. So for Dalit writers, uh, uh, the uh, the the it is Dalit literature is a cultural revolution. Right. Importantly, for them, it's a cultural revolution, but it's not a cultural revolution which is detached from a social and a political revolution. Right. Right. So. Uh, In their lineage, uh, uh, they are invoking, in their discussions, they are invoking the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and the Chinese Revolutions. Uh, Some of the scholars who have done wonderful work, who are talking about Dalit literature, will refer mostly to the the saint literature, the saintly literature of Maharashtra. But in their discussions, if you see some of the discussions that are happening, the Dalit writers are uh, are negating this influence, right? And they are laying claim to the French, Russian, and the Chinese Revolution, and they are laying claim to the Enlightenment tradition of reason and secularism, right? So I, w- I wanted to capture that, right? I wanted to uh, through their discussion, I wanted to show what was important to these intellectuals and writers at this time in the nineteen fifties and sixties, right? So they were. Uh, so they are talking about the french revolution they're talking about the russian revolution they're talking about the chinese revolution which they trace the lineage to that uh, they are, of dalit uh the dalit revolution to these revolutions which have become successful they're reading socialist realism russian socialist realism like right? so maxim gorky is somebody i think everybody almost everybody uh in various regions have uh, they've translated maxim gorky uh, including uh, uh, you know some of the newspapers in uh, weekly started by Ambedkar had also started uh, tra- translated Maxim Gorky, particularly mother, right? uh, his mother. Um, and then they're also laying c- claim to African American literature. Right? So they're getting inspired by that. So uh, uh, and the path to that these influences are there are many paths to these influences. Right, they're inspired by some of the Bengali writers. Right, the was was uh, icon for uh, for somebody like Babur or Bagul, for instance. So they're being introduced to these things through various means. And, you know, some of the Marxists are introducing them to socialist revolution. Of course, Ambedkar has already translated some of that. So uh, in the sixties, they are reading um, African American literature. The influences are also through personal contact. One important intellectual and an important figure, figure in all this is a person called M.N. Vankhede. Uh, and uh, Vankhede gets a scholarship to study in uh, the U.S. Uh, in, uh, the, in the 1960s. And he comes here in the early 1960s. He had was identified for a scholarship in the 1950s, but he couldn't come because he fell ill, etc. But he eventually lands up on another scholarship, uh, on a fourth scholarship in the 1960s. And he studies what he calls... Uh, he calls it negro literature or he studies african american literature right and uh, he's now reading uh, various texts including texts not written by african uh, african americans he's uh, reading uncle tom's cabin etc and he's talking about what is happening there he's reading uh, richard wright etc he's uh, ta- talking about the black power movement uh, and after finishing his phd from the University of Florida, he goes back to uh, Maharashtra, he goes back to Bombay, and he's he writes on what he has seen. And he's asking Dalit intellectuals to write vidrohi or radical or rebellious literature. Right? That's one strand. Then there are other uh, Marathi intellectuals, not just Dalit intellectuals, who are also roaming around, uh, traveling in uh, the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. And they have also seen some of uh, these performances, uh, read some of this literature. Uh, By performances, I mean uh, 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 one of them called Kulkarni had uh, seen the performance of Leroy Jones, uh, who later on becomes Amiri Baraka. And he is also, you know, uh, is fascinated by this. Uh, and he's asking uh, uh, when he goes back to uh, B- Bombay, he's asking Dalit writers to replicate the anger in this anger in this literature. Now, you have to portray this your anger uh, in this. So th- these are some of the things that I wanted to chart. That you know, there are many people, there are many different influences uh, that are uh, important to Dalit literature. Uh, not just saintly literature. Right. Uh, then one of the important things that happens in this times in the 50s and 60s is that you know, many Dalits, particularly Mahar Dalits, they convert to Buddhism. Right? So what is the influence of Buddhism on this literature? And it seems that initially not much. Right? I mean, this is a major event and one would have thought that this event would, would have been portrayed in this literature. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, as Bagul's mentioned that you know Dalits were still processing what has happened, so they it hasn't come into literature in the '60s and even in the early uh, '70s, right? What they are writing about uh, are, of course, life in the slums. So I track these various lineages. One of the things that Van Kadi also does, which I must talk about actually, uh, because I found it very fascinating, is that he looks up to social anthropology. And Vankerya says that let's read so- social anthropology. And that let that become the model for our literature. Because social anthropologists are talking about the experiences of people, etc. And what social anthropologists are also doing are talking about myths that people hold. So now that he's saying that Dalits have converted to Buddhism, you need new myths. Right? Some of the old myths are not going to hold. So then he uh, says, you know, read social anthropology. So then what I, point I make is that, okay, social anthropology, um, fine. So, I mean, social anthropology is wonderful, but the road from social anthropology to literature goes through the Bombay slums. So if you want to talk about realism in literature, then you're talking about life in Bombay slums, and which is what many uh, Dalit writers end up doing initially they don't write about the conversion to Buddhism etc but they talk about life in Bombay slums many of their stories, many of the poems are set in Bombay slums so uh, I talk about this discussions that many Dalit uh, intellectuals and writers are having in the 40s, 50s and 60s Uh, but not just Dalits but they're also talking to many uh, many other um, so-called upper caste Marathi intellectuals too Right. And there are movements in upper caste Marathi literature, uh, which Anjali Nirlikar has spoken about called the the 60s movement, the Satothari movement, Satothari movement, etc. Bombay modern, exactly. So th- there is that too. They, you know, they're not just talking among themselves. They're talking to various people. They're open. They're open. They're, you know, they're it's a discussion that is very, they, they're not closed. It's, it's a very open discussion. And they're re- rejecting certain uh, things, which is the uh, uh, tracing many people are saying you know they should trace your lineage also to say Marathi saintly literature, but they are rejecting that and providing reasons for rejecting that. So these are some of the things that I was uh, talking about. So the space of the literature literature then is transnational right uh, by and then because it's transnational, it's also dynamic a dynamic space, and in their rhetoric, they uh, identify the dominant literature of the time, the dominant Marathi literature of the time, with a locality in Pune, where the which is a Brahmin-dominated locality called Sadashivpeth. So the locality is you know there is stability to that locality. Locality is depicted as backward uh, or you know things don't change much. But the space of Dalit literature is a dynamic space where there is this uh, intense discussion and dialogue that is happening, dialogue about the creation of literature itself.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, this is you've already prefaced uh, what I was going to ask in my next question, which is, you know, the and that just goes to show the centrality of the slum as the locus and the topos absolutely uh, you know absolutely. that is that is coming up in the literary formation so if you could just like el- elaborate a bit
0: more on that right. absolutely so uh, as you see i mean the, the slum and you know uh, capitalism etc is a thread that you'll see throughout right as i was saying slums are important to uh, industrial capitalism because they'll house workers slums are being spoken about by urban planners right uh sums are being spoken about by uh many many other people the elite etc they're all focused on slums and dalit literature also is talking about slums right the road as i was saying from social anthropology to literature is passing through the slums slums becomes the site for uh, uh the site where uh, the slums is the space of course where many dalit writers grow up right they grow up in these spaces um uh, so uh, People like Bagul and Namde Dasal and many, many, many other right? Arjun Dangli, et cetera, et cetera. They've all grown up in these slums, right? And their experience in the slums are, uh, you know, they are there, they are listening to Marxists, they're listening to socialists, they're listening to, uh, to Ambedkar, of course. Right. Uh, um, and Ambedkar, of course, is the most important influence on the literature. That which is, they are very clear in saying that Ambedkar is the most important influence, uh, and the others Marx and all is important, but not as important as Ambedkar. Right. So slums become uh, uh, are sites in which Dalits have grown up, and of course, the sites in which some of the stories uh, written by the Dalits are, are set in these slums. So I discuss uh, the works of two writers centrally, actually. Uh, Babura bagul who is a short story writer and Namdev dasal who is uh, uh, mostly writes mostly writes poems of course he's also written short stories etc right so I have uh, read some of their works closely and offer a close reading of some of their works and of course I've uh, offered a close reading of their works in the context of changes that are happening uh, in politics in the 1960s and 70s uh, etc. Uh, in which, of course, slums are uh, play a central role. Uh, so, uh, so if you see uh, somebody like uh, uh, Babro Bagul, for instance, Babro Bagul in in many stories are set in slums, and he's talking about the harshness of life in the slums, right? And uh, he's uh, uh, he's discussing uh, uh, he's discussing how. Some of the let me just get a drink of water. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, in this, uh, the stories are set in slums uh, in in which uh, the characters, uh, for instance, in one, this particular story that I uh, talk about in depth, uh, there are two writers who are going through a writer's block, right? So then they are saying, What do we do? You know, let's come and sit together and write together. So they come, uh, one of the writers comes and visits another writer in a slum. And uh, then they say, okay, see, we still can't, you know, get ourselves to writing uh, whatever we wanted to write. What do we do? So then they say, okay, let's take a walk in the slums and we'll get inspired. So they uh, start walking around the slums and then they are get you the reader gets introduced to various characters and their life stories right so in these life stories then uh, are you know some, some of them heart rending so then you see it uh, here, here about this uh, man who comes from the maratha caste uh, uh, which is an upper uh, which is a, by upper caste i mean upper than the dalits which would be called the middle caste uh, uh, now now this maratha caste man used to be a wrestler uh, and was a champion wrestler, but uh, th- that this is the story, and I'm narrating some of the stories to give you a sense of what some things are getting discussed. So this he was a champion wrestler, uh, but he discovers that his wife is having an affair with somebody, uh, his comp- uh, a competitor. Right, so he ends up killing both of them, goes to prison. When he's released from prison, he makes his way to uh, Bombay city, but you know he's now. Uh, not the man he was. Right? You know, he's become becomes an alcoholic, etc., etc. Um, he lands up in a slum in uh, Bombay. Uh, could not hold on to jobs because of various things. Because you know, he's also an alcoholic, not interested uh, in working, etc. Eventually, a Dalit woman falls in love with this man, uh, and uh, they then uh, move from the slums they were in to this other slum, right? And uh, uh, this man, of course, uh, you know this alcoholism. Uh, you know it goes deeper into de- uh, you know deeper into alcoholism, and then eventually he dies. Right. So uh, then, so you get some of the life stories of these characters. Then there is another story now about a a, a Muslim man who is retired as a school teacher in Hyderabad, whose uh, children stay in. Uh, uh, In uh, what is would be South Bombay, and through various quirks of fate, because uh, of various reason, uh, you know, he is tasked now with after retiring he wants to be close to his family. He starts now with taking care of his ten grandchildren. Now you see that this uh, man uh, doesn't know what to do. I mean, he only has a limited income, so the only thing he can do is he starts. moving from slum to slum, right? And during, in Bombay, and then makes a journey from south to north, which was the journey of the urban planners too. What they're recommending is that Bombay should move from the south to the north or suburbanize, right? This is the journey that this character is also tracing from slums in South Bombay. He's coming to a slum in North Bombay and in the process, staying in various slums. And he starts... Getting rid of one child at a time, right? He's uh, abandoning them, abandoning them, selling them off, abandoning them, abandoning them. And by the time he comes to the slum of these uh, two writers who are taking a walk, uh, he is only left with one uh, uh, grandchild. And he, uh, the, it's important for uh, that grandchild is important because that grandchild will beg for money, right? That's why he has not abandoned that grandchild, right? So in this dalit literature and in other stories too we see that family relationships are also being commoditized right uh, and that's a feature that you see in many other stories where in which uh, you know there is another story about uh, uh, two uh, women who are selling bananas in, in bananas in front of a textile mill and then the competition among them and they come they are related and the competition among them, etc. Uh, eventually, so these are some of the themes that you uh, 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 Babu, Baburao explores. He also talks about, of course, life in outside Bombay. For him, still Bombay is a promised place. I mean, you know, it's a. It's, it's also very interesting. Right. Some of the overt, uh, uh, overt uh, reactions to casteism, or so, or. or Overt instances of casteism are still outside Bombay, in villages and in smaller towns, which uh, and I described that uh, uh, through a, in a, a, a couple of uh, in a couple of short stories are talking about that, right? So the killing and murder uh, of uh, people etc. because of caste, those are happening in uh, in places outside Bombay. So uh, I so uh, and uh, so that's that's Barbara Bhagul. Uh, where slums, of course, are uh, uh, important, um, cars, of course, is important. And even for somebody like Namdev Dasal, whose uh, first collection of poems was Golpitha. Uh, uh, and uh, Golpita, of course, was a, uh, you know, instantly becomes very popular um, uh, and uh, is recognized as a landmark in Dalit literature. Uh, uh, Dalit literature gets the recognition that it's been wanting. Right. Uh, in the earlier chapter, and even in this chapter, I, uh, one of the points that I'm trying to make is this question of recognition. How does a literature get rec- recognized as Dalit literature? And how does it get recognition from the Mal- Marathi literati, from the state, and from the powers that be? So this Bakul and Namde Dasal get recognition. And even in his poems, of course, Dasal famously has spoken about uh, se- the sex workers, etc., cetera, uh, life in the slums, uh, in uh, Kamathipura, et cetera, where he has grown up, right? So slum becomes important uh, uh, is an important locus and topos as you're saying uh, in Dalit literature, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and it's it's important because of you know uh, these discussions where you know some slums uh, if you want to write realistic literature, which is what Dalit writers want to do, where do you locate it? You locate it in the slums, right? Of course, slums is the place where they have grown up. Uh, I mean, they are still living. Right when they are writing this literature, they are still living in slums, right? Uh, and slums, of course, is the place uh, where uh, urban plan uh, is, is the space that urban planners want want to get rid of. But uh, it's also the place which you really can't get rid of because it's important to uh, capitalism in the city. Right. So I trace some of these paradoxes in uh, the uh, in the book. Uh, but also some of these uh, paradoxes in chapter 4 and 5 one of the paradoxes i trace in the chapter on the chapters on literature is that dalit writers want recognition from the state uh, etc and marathi literati which is of course their object of critique too right so uh, and that's the paradox you want recognition but you also uh, that's the object of critique too uh, that's uh, the other one Right. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I also discussed in the last chapter is, of course, the Dalit Panther movement. And p- people like um, Namdev Dhasal is associated with the Dalit Panther. Uh, Bagul, too, is associated with the Dalit Panther. He never joins the Dalit Panther, but he's involved in some of the conversations on the Dalit Panther movement. And the Dalit Panther movement uh, want to bring about a revolution in literature, but also want to bring about a revolution in, uh, in politics and in society. Right, But in their manifesto and what happens to uh, the Dalit Panther movements, of course, uh, is that within a couple of years, they uh, split up and then they go on splitting up into various groups. But all the groups and the original da- Dalit Panther are talking about housing in the city and are talking about slums in the city. So they want slums to become durable. They want some slums to become durable. And that's one of the de- political demands, right? So I also bring this out that uh, the Dalit Panther uh, movement uh, is also uh, for, uh, the, I mean, it's a radical movement, a revolutionary movement, but for them too, the right to stay put in Bombay, the right to uh, to be to, for a slum to become a durable slum is very important, right? right? And that's how the Dalit Panther movement becomes in the late 1970s then. Which is they are demanding housing, they are demanding uh, provisions for the slums, uh, electricity, etc., uh, uh, then toilets and stuff like that uh, for the slum. So slum becomes important is important to Dalit literature, to the Dalit Panther movement, etc. Uh, and that's what I am trying to bring out in the book.
1: Yeah, that was so fascinating to hear, um, Janet, The the way in which you have sort of brought together you know, socio historiography of Dalit literature with um, the topos of the slum as Absolutely. something that the urban imaginary would like to think of as extraneous, but is crucial to, to the way in which um, urban planning and capital develops together.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: so I, I, yeah, I know I've kept you for a long time, but I can't end this conversation without asking you about, very briefly about your next project. So, you know, at this stage, what can you tell us about it?
0: no uh, uh, no I, I can tell you just a little bit um, uh, i want to uh, i found uh, find this figure uh, gangadhar adhikari uh, very fascinating actually you know gangadhar adhikari have written a little bit about him in that chapter second chapter of the book uh, but uh, through gangadhar adhikari who was a scientist trained as a scientist uh, 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 who gets a phd uh, in chemistry in berlin uh, I was hanging out with um, many of the important scientists of that time, including Albert Einstein, uh, in Berlin, who first joins the Communist Party in Berlin, and then comes to Bombay to become uh, uh, and comes to Bombay and then becomes part of the Communist Party of India, and then uh, immediately jailed and is transported to Meerut so this gangadhar adhikari and his life which is his life from the 1920s uh, till uh, 1981 when he dies i mean that's a, for me that's a fascinating period in uh, 20th century india right which where you can uh, see uh, uh, you know you can hear uh, you can talk a lot about this period so the gangadhar adhikari's life becomes my entry point into talking about this period in 20th century South Asia. So through Gangadhar Adhikari, uh, I'm talking about, of course, debates within communism, and of course Indian communism embraces democracy in the 1950s, etc. So through Gangadhar Adhikari, then I I would talk about various other events in South Asian history, including India's partition, because Gangadhar Adhikari had very famously said that, uh, you know, uh, uh, had said that, Pakistan uh, should be created when you have political equality. It's only then that you can talk about uh, social and economic equality. So, uh, and it was a controversial view, which uh, in the 1960s people then disavowed that view, uh, the communist critique that view, uh, uh, etc. But you know, through that, you know, there is an end. Gangadhar Adhikari and his life becomes an end to talk about various things, including Indian agriculture, because he was an expert on Indian agriculture and. uh, you see that um, what's happening with the, uh, the farmers' movement uh, now, which is still ongoing. So, I hope, I'm hoping that I can, uh, through him, through his life, I can say something, uh, something new, something interesting about 20th century India.
1: Thank you so much, Janet, for talking to us about your book and your new project. And, you know, congratulations on the upcoming publication.
0: Uh, thank you so much Lake, and thank you for thank having me you.
1: thank you, me. you it was wonderful to have you um and thank you our listeners uh for listening to us in this episode and hope you have a great day